Hi, everyone. Welcome to another informative episode of Green Nickel 101, your source for eco-friendly EV nickel discussions. My name is Leo, and I'll be your host today. And with me is John. Hi, everyone. You know what? Today, we're going to talk about uh, deep ocean mining. But before we get to that, we're going to recap a little bit about what we talked about in our last episode, Canada, a heaven for EV metals. Nickel processing and how green it is. That's what we talked about last week, John. Mm -hmm. We discussed laterites versus sulfides. Mm -hmm. We talked about, you know, in order to create uh, batteries, we need the the right battery metals. Yeah, we talked about purity and how nickel sulfides uh, are a pure form, purer form of nickel. And that's a class one that we need. Yeah, yeah. How if you're if you're really looking for battery metals and uh, nickel used in the cathode, you really want to focus on that class one nickel, which predominantly and probably more efficiently comes from a sulfide deposit. Right. And then, you know, sulfides come from certain parts of the globe, mostly the Northern Hemisphere, and how uniquely positioned Canada is as being a... Um, uh, a notable, you know, resource in the supply chain for nickel sulfides. We also talked about the incredible advantages because of that and the incredible opportunities for both companies and investors alike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada's a great place source for these uh, nickel ferrous metals mm-hmm. uh, and mining them in an eco-friendly way. Yeah, and we also talked about the fact that, you know, when you think about consumption, okay, and consumers and supply... So, you know, you want your supply, and we talked a lot about uh, how how battery metals are better off-sourced on the continent that they would be consumed. They so, travel better, more yeah. efficiently. Yeah, you want, you, so if, if we're, you know, our number one trading partner. United States United of America. States, yeah, huge population of consumers there. You know, what better place to source your battery metals from than your neighbor to the north, your best friend, Canada. So, right. Yeah. Makes total sense. And you're shipping it over land as opposed to overseas. And, and, and close it. proximity. Excellent. You know what? Now let's move on to this week's discussion. How green is deep ocean mining? But before we go there, what is deep ocean mining, John? Like, um, let's get our audience a little bit more in check here. So, you know, as opposed to terrestrial mining, which we're familiar with. Which is on land. Yeah. Land and correct me if Traditional land based mining. Mining. Okay. So this is where we do open pit, yeah. shaft mining, yeah. uh, those kind of things. Mm. We talked about, you know, how they can be done in a sustainable, eco-friendly way. You can take the minerals out of the earth, put the earth back, plant trees, getting things back to an original state. Yeah, it's called mine remediation and, and, and being more in control of your environment. You know, it was an old saying back in the day we used to use, make it look like it never happened. Leo, <laughs> make it look like it never happened. You know, I mean, even if we were mischievous back in our younger days, whatever you do, right. make it look like it never happened. Well, wasn't, isn't that a great rule to apply to terrestrial land-based mining? Guess what? And the Ministry of Natural Resources, most environmentalists would applaud that strategy. Do what you're going to do. Minor disruption, but... When you're done, make it look like it never happened. Back to back to original. Yeah. So when we're on the flip side of that coin, ocean, deep ocean mining. So what is deep ocean mining? From what I've read and how, you know, the information that I gathered, deep ocean ma- mining is mining for minerals below 200 meters. There's apparently a defined mm-hmm. answer to that. 
Um, deep ocean mine, the first um, discussions around deep ocean mining in the early 70s. And they actually did a, a deep ocean mining kind of like test or demo. Apparently, like back in, in the 1970s, they built... The um, early stage, early stage exploration. Yeah. Uh, they, they, conceptual they, stage, yeah. Yeah, they actually built like these rovers to go underground and, or deep ocean terrain to see if it was feasible to mine these nodes or these sort of nodules, yeah. so, manganese modules. There's like yeah. chunks of round-looking rocks down there that so have ba unbelievable what they do concentrations is, of manganese and yeah. lithium and nickel and all kinds Cobalt. of stuff. There's there's actually underneath the on the ocean floor, there's it's like land, you know, there's areas where there's there's cliffs and cascading uh uh, pits and there's plains as well. So imagine sandy plains of of deep ocean areas where there are nodes or nodules or grapefruit-sized balls of or bigger. Some of them look like basketballs, John. Like it's possibly from yeah, the possibly. pictures I saw. Most of the ones I saw more like a butcha ball. A butcha <laughs> okay. ball, yeah. Okay. You know, it's so, hard to uh, get a perception yeah. down there because you don't know what to. It's not like you have like fire hydrants to look at. So, to relate so to these and, these nodes of uh -huh. minerals, dense minerals that have been down there for hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah, like maybe hundreds of thousands. Of yeah, years, millions. I'm not sure. Even, yeah are very rich in in what we would consider to be valuable uh, uh, metals that uh, could be utilized in the battery supply chain. So nickel, cobalt, uh, manganese, potentially some copper, I'm not sure. Uh, but one of the things that I thought about just the other day, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's these nodes of battery grade minerals sitting on the ocean floor. And aside from the obvious, uh, which we'll discuss very shortly, is like the disruption of the ocean floor and everything. I wondered to myself, well, what happens to battery metals when they've been submerged in a saline environment for hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of years? What happens to the metals? And I don't know this. I don't know, you know, I, is there degradation? You know, uh, is there any degradation in, in the, the utility of those metals? Yeah, I'm not quite Something sure. I, we should explore. We potentially, we should throw that in our, and maybe we'll get some feedback, mm -hmm. some questions from some people out in our audience. would love to hear from them. Uh, I my The th first thing that comes to my mind is what happens to these metals when they've been submerged mm -hmm. in, the, in the ocean floor for such a long time. I'm looking at a picture here. Um, uh, Nature.com put out an article blog um, called Seabed Mining is Coming. This was uh, dated back in 2019 of August, bringing mineral riches and fears of epic extension, extinctions. They're, they're, Ooh, they're naming extinction. this one. That's well, they've kind of, you know, looked word. at the whole concept of deep ocean mining and, you know, some of the, um, the drawbacks that come from doing this sort of thing. Because you just don't know. Like, we, you know, there are very few places on the earth that we still don't know a lot about. And there are some very deep parts of the ocean, the Mariana Trench and all that. This particular zone that this well, you, you, article is referencing is called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. And we're seeing a picture here of all these nodules. You're right. They look more like butchie balls <laughs> now that I see this picture. But again, you, you don't have a good, clear sense of perception here. These are manganese 
in these no uh, nodules, they cover the whole sea floor. Uh, by the way, uh, these links to these references and the articles that we talk about, ladies and gentlemen, they're, they're going to be in our bio, so feel free to click through the, to them. Um, and uh, it's quite kind of interesting. Um, you know, they, they, they actually did some demos back in the 70s from 1972 to... I think 1980, where they built these rovers led by these uh, professors, and I forgot the gentleman's name that led this expedition, where they, these rovers, let's call them, uh, sea drones, and they'd go on the bottom floor and they'd suck up all the sand, dirt, everything else, suck on these nodules, they keep the nodules. So you're basically up disrupting the, the ocean floor. And yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to touch on something because you just said something very briefly that, that, hit a chord with me you talked about the ocean floor and you know how much of the ocean floor has actually been explored and i started to think to myself it's almost like you know again I, we're thinking about our youth and, and the final frontier what would you know a lot of people think about the final frontier being space right mm -hmm. but we've only explored potentially maybe 50 percent of the ocean floor I would love a statistic on that. Yeah, I there's a whole world. There's yeah. mountains, there's so volcanoes, there's... There's, like, uh, the ocean floor is unexplored. So I would be very careful with what, uh, what... Be careful what you get yourself into because I don't know what the impact of scraping... Here's, here's an analogy for you. Okay, Leo, because I rambled on there a little bit. I'm going to have to do it again. Be prepared. We're going to take a, a journey in time. Okay, we're going to go back in the way back time machine. No so, speedos, hopefully. No, no speedos this okay. time. But you're going to have to close your eyes and relax and envision yourself going back in time to, let's say, the 1970s. Got it. And, you know, when we were young, we learned a lot about the world Younger. through through television. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, yep. on a Sunday afternoon at five o'clock, you'd learn about land animals through a show. At five o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, wild. called Mutual of Omaha's Mutual. Wild Kingdom. Wild Kingdom. Loved it. Marlon Perkins. <laughs> Loved him. But what followed that show? The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau. Right. So Jacques would go down deep in the ocean floor, my friends, and explore the undersea world and the beautiful animals and sea creatures I love down that there. Show. Love that show. We learned about the deep ocean and and the 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 sea creatures from that show mm -hmm. i mean we didn't have a lot of mediums to be able to explore in our right youth, right it was that or encyclopedias yeah or and last time library. i checked when jacques was down there exploring the coral reefs and stuff you didn't see some big dredging piece of equipment dragging itself along no, the it was pristine floor. it was pristine original so, so I don't think Jacques would be too impressed with, no. with this this possibility of of extracting battery metals from the seafloor either. So. Well, fast forwarding a little bit, Greenpeace is not happy about this. Like, and, and the reason why, you know, everybody is look, uh, what? Why is it so important? Like, what is the issue? First of all, you have disturbance of the seafloor, right? You have scraping of the ocean floor by machines. They can alter, destroy uh, deep sea habitats. Right, uh, many species of animals live here, and it's a very complex uh, ecosystem. You know, predators and prey. You have everything from food the chain. smallest, yeah, the food chain. You know, you have everything from the smallest zooplankton all the way up to the biggest, you know, uh, sea mammals and other predators, sharks and whales. Right, so you you have a potential loss of species and fragmentation or loss of ecosystems because of that. 
and um, you have, um, like we talked about, you have volcanoes down there. You have, and then you get these sediment plumes. You were talking about, hey, you're you're sucking up all this stuff. Well, you're going to make a lot of plumes, mm-hmm. and those plumes, those sediment plumes. Uh, they're fine sediments on the seafloor that consist of silt, clay, remains of microorganisms, all kinds of stuff, and they become suspended, and they float. And it's not really clear how that's going to impact or resettle and where, and how that's going to disrupt habitats and ecosystems. Like, like coral reefs and yeah. things. You know, coral reefs thrive on... on now, down like, there, you're not going to see too many coral reefs because not of the at depth. depth. But you just said that, you know, you're, you're disrupting sediment and currents take sediment who knows where. It could end up on a coral reef on some shallower yeah. area somewhere. Yeah, they got these, uh, what are they called? Those hyperheat vents. And you have full families and species of fish and marine life that live around these warmer, you know, nutrient-rich, you know, vents, uh, Mm -hmm. volcanic vents. And when you have these sediments and they they have these cooling effects or they could very well plug up some of these areas Mm -hmm. and you you could destroy lots of stuff. So Greenpeace has been very, very... Vocal. Yeah, vocal about this. We'll jump into that conversation in a quick sec. I just, last thing I want to say is pollution. Okay, those three things. You got disturbance of the seafloor, sediment plumes, and pollution. Uh, species like whales, tuna, sharks could be affected by noise, vibrations. Do you know noise travels 20 times uh, further and faster underwater? Because it's denser. Think about it on air, right? You know, More you can hear it. Yeah. yeah, and you don't know where it's coming from. Like I spend a lot of time scuba diving, and when you hear a ting or a wet, or any noise or a boat, you know, it could be five feet away from you, or it could be like 500 feet away from you. It mm. feels like it's right there. And the vibrations make it feel like it's right there. So you can have a lot of disturbance by a lot of that, the mining equipment. So even though you have something, you know, drilling down 500 meters or sucking up stuff, there's so, going to be a lot so of noise. So sea creatures that, that, that communicate based on noise and yeah. transmission of sound Especially waves. in the deep sea where you don't have a lot of light. Could and they do yeah, yeah, yeah. rely on other senses, right? We got um, this article is great. This is from IUCN. IUCN is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Uh, they put out a great article um, here. Um, what, what's this one called? Uh, deep sea mining. It's called deep sea Ni- mining. It's an issues brief, um, and uh, they're basically uh, you can read all about it here. They're showing like a map all over the world where uh, some of the deep sea mining has been considered targets, or targets, targets or whatever. Uh, it's a lot of sea floor that's being considered for this stuff. There's uh, eco- ecologically or biologically significant areas. Mm-hmm. And they go on further to talk about why it's important and these three things that could happen with pollution disturbance of uh, sea floor and sediment plumes. Great article. Look, look, look at this image here where they're actually showing you the C4 massive sulfides on active and inactive hydrothermal vents. Mm-hmm. There it is. That's what I was looking mm-hmm. for, right? And how they suck everything up. They got these subsurface plumes from return water, Surrey lift pump, C4 collector. Like an, it looks like an undersea Hoover vacuum cleaner, folks. Yeah. You know, look, you know, commercially speaking, it's a great idea. I love it as as someone that's looking as for a capital return, but that's to be considered. You know, this is very expensive. First of all, I don't know if you can make a, a buck doing this. You know, it sounds great, mineral rich, 
But, you know, going down like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 meters down below, it's like, you know, you're mining on Mount Everest. Just It's just as difficult. Thin yeah. air, all that kind of stuff uh, on the reverse. I think that even based on our discussion in this past two, 10, 15 minutes, is I find that there's too many question marks. There's not enough data. There's not enough reason to support my uh, initiative as an investor to to invest money in this uh, this is just my opinion by the way but it's I, I don't see there's not enough data and right. not, not enough precedent there's not enough precedent out there for me to actually seriously look at this as a viable option to terrestrial land-based mining where everything can be put back the way it was battery originally. metals yes. right it's proven we've done it yeah. before there's history there's a lot of areas that have been mined right now you would never know it was a mine if you look at it 30 years later and they re restored the land and reforested the land a lot yeah. of times you go back and you're like wow it's like nothing was ever there mm -hmm. just to give uh, greenpeace a little bit of uh it's uh five cents here they have uh, an article called Five Reasons Why Deep Sea Mining Will Only Get Our Planet Into Trouble. And they kind of outline this in a very nice, simple, succinct way. Number one, very bad news for wildlife. We already talked about the, that. Mm -hmm. Number two, extinction of creatures found nowhere else on the planet. That's a very good point. Uh, we kind of briefly touched on that. Three, disturbing of one of our best allies against climate change. Blue carbon, they call it, right? The carbon that is naturally absorbed by marine life. Mm -hmm. And aren't we trying to reverse the effects of climate uh, change and all that sort of thing? the whole theme so, of our podcast so far has been about climate change, carbon neutral, uh, environmentally friendly impact on our planet. Right? Yeah. Number four, impacting the ocean food chain. We talked a little bit about that. Um, and number five, do we want to destroy wonders that we are yet to discover? And properly understand. We don't haven't. We don't know enough, right? Mm -hmm. So, la ladies and gents, you know what? Um, here's our information that we've kind of researched and looked at over the last uh, week or so, or two weeks. And from my understanding, how deep ocean mining and the effects, pros and cons, can have. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, you know, leave it up to you. The uh, links are in our bio. You can research it yourself. And that's our take on ocean deep sea mining versus terrestrial. Having said that, you know what? Let's jump into our spotlight discussion today, John. Let's do that, Leo. Excellent. This week's spotlight has been brought to you by Tardison Nickel. Tardison is advancing its high-grade nickel sulfide project in Ontario. Class 1 nickel, an essential component in battery production. The Kinbridge Nickel Deposit is heading toward a production decision. Expanding a resource in an environmentally safe and efficient way. Tardison Nickel. TN on the CSE. Great. So this week's Spotlight, we're going to talk a little bit about Canada and a uh, great report that came out, you know, on Canada's looking at, you know, what we should do to secure our own supply of critical minerals. This is amazing because usually I've been hearing about this in the U.S., a lot of this about national security and this and that. Well, Canada's starting to kind of wake up and smell the coffee. This article here came from mining.com titled What Canada Should Do to Secure Its Own Supply of Critical Minerals. And we got this in the uh, in the bio as well, everybody. So, John, like, this is, uh, this is great. I'm, this is music to my ears. Well, you know, I mean, I think the world has recently woken up to the dominance of China as it pertains to strategic minerals, rare earths, battery supply chain. 
And like I said in a, a couple of episodes prior, you know, I wouldn't bet against North America. You know, we may be caught behind the eight ball, but I think we have the potential to catch up and secure our own domestic supply. And when we talk about domestic supply, I think it's important that we recognize that we look at North America as a whole. Okay. We're all, you know, there's, there's, there's supply opportunities and demand obviously is growing in, in North America. So the West. Yeah. So when, you know, when, this article is interesting because, you know, we're talking about Canada securing their battery supply chain. Mm-hmm. But when we say that, you know, again, we've got uh, our best friends to the South in the United States that are going to be looking north of the border to create strategic alliances with us and to improve our history of tremendous history of trade as two nations. Uh, so I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for Canada moving forward. And it's important for Canada to not fall in the trap that they fall in in the past, mm-hmm. fell in, in the past, excuse me, whereby you're you're you know you're you're selling off a lot of your natural resources to foreign investment whether it be european asian uh you know whether it's pertaining to oil lumber what what have you uh we have to preserve and utilize our own natural resources and our own opportunities uh, for our impending future demand, which is mm-hmm. on the doorstep. And this is going to take the collective efforts of all levels of government, you mm-hmm. know, um, government industry relationship between federal, provincial, you know, local, not only governmental, but also uh, other key stakeholders, um, First Nations, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're a big part of this as well. Because a lot of the, you know, mineral rich lands um, are on you know, First Nations, uh, you know, property and land. So, mm-hmm. and you know, Canada has an excellent reputation and history of uh, communicating and, and having strong relationships with First Nations and having First Nations uh, participate in the growth of the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the resource sector. So. This is an interesting um um, paragraph. So the, this report, because <clears throat> this this blog article talks about a report that was um, uh, recently uh, done, and it was handed down, or you know, uh, it was uh, presented before the House of Commons. You know, it's ringing basically an alarm bell here. How important it is for Canada to secure a supply of critical min- minerals in the face, like John said, of China's dominance, which you know they own as much as eighty percent of the global, <clears throat> excuse me, cl- uh, global processing capacity for rare earths. They've been doing it for decades. They've been building up to this and acquiring strategic mineral assets across the world and being a big EV producer, battery producer. Um, And according to data gathered by the committee, it's likely to hold about two-thirds of the global capacity to build lithium-ion batteries by 2030. (laughs) Two-thirds. Now, do we want to be reliant on our EV strategies on a dominant force that's going to have two-thirds of the capacity of the world? Now, it is growing, of course. So the supply and the demand, obviously demand is growing at an exponential rate. And we have a great opportunity here to meet that demand or at least start catching up to it. Last thing. Uh, well, we have the goods in the ground, Leo. That's what's important to remember. It's not like, you know, uh, we've had the wool pulled over our eyes. Everything we need to move forward is we under have our feet in the ground. We just have to 
get the ball rolling, explore, and and uh, you know get the supply chain moving. Yeah, you know what? I was just reading here <clears throat> as well. Canada does have incredible potential. You're right; it's under our feet. You know, this report also points out that Canada has everything it needs. Um, we have over 60 minerals, uh, 60, not six, 60 to hit our goals, uh, including some critical minerals. And it's uh, the only nation in the Western Hemisphere that has copper, cobalt, rare earth elements. I didn't know, but we do. Uh, graphite, lithium, manganese, nickel deposits, which were all needed to produce advanced batteries for electric vehicles. So you're absolutely spot on with that, John. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just wrapping up, guys, um, this leads us to our, you know, we're finishing up uh, another episode here. With that being said, we've reached the end of the show. Thanks for joining us. And we hope to see you next week where we have a surprise, John. A surprise, uh, a surprise. That's kind of exciting. I, it's I, like it's like getting a box of Cracker Jacks. What's that's right. Surprise well, inside? I can't tell you or else it wouldn't be a surprise, but don't miss it. <laughs> and uh, let us know what's on your mind, people. Uh, fellow Neckleheads, you know, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at uh, our tag is uh, or our handle is at uh, Green Nickel 101. <clears throat> you know, we're happy to answer questions in our next episode. So be sure to leave comments or your opinions or any feedback or correct us on anything you heard that you feel is incorrect. We're, we're happy to be uh, corrected. Um, we're not going to take offense to that, right, John? No, we're on the learning curve, Leo. Exactly. So we're, all we're, on this, we're all in we this together. We welcome the input. We're all nickelheads. We're all in this together. And remember, we upload new episodes every single Monday. And until next time, think nickel and have a green day. TARDIS and Nickel, traded on the Canadian Stock Exchange, symbol TN, or over-the-counter, symbol TTSRF. TTSRF.